This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. This morning, what I'd like to do is take a look at one of the more influential groups that settled South Dakota immediately following, well, in the decades after the Civil War, and that would be the Civil War veterans. So today, who I have joining me is a historian who's done a lot of research on South Dakota's Civil War veterans. Kurt Hackamer is the provost and vice president for academic affairs at the University of South Dakota. He's also a professor of history with a research focus on the Civil War. His work on Civil War veterans in South Dakota has been published in several places, most recently in the April edition of the Civil War Times. Welcome to History 605. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. The main sources for your research are a, a unique thing, uh, at least as far as I am aware, uh, the census records, veteran census records, in the state archives. I was wondering if you could describe what those are and uh, what your initial research question was in an interest in those records. Yeah, they really are. Uh, it's a unique census. So, um, in fact, it's unlike any other census that um, I know of. Uh, for the late 19th century, and I've talked to historians across the country about it. So the uh, Congress in the, the early 1880s offered the states and territories a chance to do an off-cycle special census uh, that would be done in 1885. Okay. And uh, just a couple of states and territories took them up on it, and one of those was Dakota Territory. And so there is this really nice, large, broad census about Dakota Territory in general, uh, but was really neat was that the, the territorial legislature decided that uh, they were going to have a special schedule of that special census devoted to enumerating the veterans who had settled in Dakota Territory. And they were very clear about why they were doing it. It's that they wanted to preserve the memory of these veterans for posterity. I think that's the language that they used. And so we have this special schedule that records about 6,000 veterans uh, in the southern half of Dakota Territory, hmm. and it asked them some really interesting, unique questions. And there's quite honestly nothing like it anywhere else in the country. It's it's a, a really great record set. Wow. So when when I found this, and and I and kudos to the State Historical Society because it was just posted out in the open on the website. Mm -hmm. Right, you're you're browsing around looking for things, and and you find this. And um, I had been interested in. Uh, the changing historical literature about Civil War veterans anyway. And the census seemed like an, a good opportunity to dig into what was happening out on the frontier. Um, I don't, I didn't have a, a really tight research question going into it. It was more of a, of a general interest, but I wanted to see, I'd done some work in quantitative history before, and I just wanted to see what that census might tell us about these veterans. Okay. And so that's where I started. So this group of 6,000 records, these were all veterans of the Civil War that settled around Dakota Territory, which at the time was the, what is today, North and South Dakota, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, it was just for the southern half, so what is now South Dakota. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and what, well, what were the kinds of questions the census asked? Uh, it, uh, a couple of really interesting, it asked 
traditional census questions like where were you born, um, how old were you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also asked um, what unit did you serve in? Okay. Um, were you wounded? Did you receive a pension? Okay. Um, what year did you come to Dakota Territory? Um, and then there was a really great question that uh, uh, really made the difference with this census. Um, where were you right before you came to Dakota Territory? Oh, wow. Um, and, then, and then there was a, you know, just a space for, for general comments that the enumerator could put down. Um, but, yeah, it asked, it asked this really great series of questions that you could then start crafting some, some larger questions, larger research questions from. Well, right. So from that, you could, um, you could sort out a lot about not only their service but, and where they were born, but kind of their settlement patterns or their immigration as they went from, say, New York to Wisconsin to Dakota Territory or something like that. Right. The, and that's, that's actually one of the things that this census does better than any other census and does better than any other statistical abstract of, of Civil War veterans, because most censuses, you would have uh, where they were born and where they were at the time of the census, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, historians have worked with Civil War veterans, you generally have where you were born um, what unit you were in, and because units are very local, you can you can extrapolate you know where they're at at that moment in time, right. and then where you're at at the time of the census. The Dakota Territory Census adds that critical fourth variable: where were you in between the war and Dakota Territory right before you came here? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it lets you chart movement and migration in ways that that no other census has been able to do. Okay. So from that, then, you can sort out maybe what's unique about the veterans who settled here. You know their unit. Um, you would know uh, perhaps the, how much combat they saw. And then right. so that's what I think in speaking with you uh, prior to this is the interesting stuff that you've been able to do about the type of person who came to Dakota Territory, the type of veteran who came to Dakota Territory. So what, what, is, what are these 6,000 records say with your quantitative analysis so yeah the 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 thing that the that the census that i pulled out of this right was uh i got interested in looking at the unit um there were a couple of really important books that came out around between 2011 and 2015 that uh started looking at uh how veterans readjusted or not to society coming back right and um, and I then and, and so that got me curious about the impact of trauma, and really this was informed in large part by talking to students in my classes who had recently been in Iraq and Afghanistan, hmm. because um, they were very interested in this as we read about it. And the problem with the 19th century is that there's no medical terminology to describe trauma. Right. So you, you can't look at medical records and see any indication of exposure to trauma. Mm-hmm. And I, so I knew that that didn't exist directly. And so my goal was to find a way to, to find markers for trauma. Okay. So not an absolute descriptor, but markers. Mm-hmm. And there I leaned on the work of a couple of 19th century statisticians who had looked at the Union Army, um, most notably a guy named William Fox. And Fox had gone through all of the Union Army regiments um, 
And he had identified what he called the Fighting 300 Regiment, so the regiment that saw the most intense combat in the Civil War. Okay. And I remember sitting at my desk thinking, at the moment that it struck me that, ah, there's the marker, right? Yeah. Um, so if, I, if you take a look at the Union Army as a whole, um, about 8.5% of Union Army regiments were Fox's 300 Fighting Regiments. Wow. Okay. That's a pretty small right. number. Can you um, a lot of that? It's a very small number, right? I, yeah, it's much smaller than I expected. Um, when I started uh, coding for that in, in the census records, what I found was that almost 21.5% of the veterans who came to Dakota Territory were in those 300 fighting regiments. Hmm. So they, they are dramatically overrepresented for exposure to high-intensity combat. Okay. Um, and then from there, you, I mean, that, that then became, I think that is the, the biggest finding that then informed every piece that I've written since then, is charting where uh, these veterans with exposure to high-intensity combat went and how that affected their settlement patterns. So you probably could look at it and say, did they go west with their war buddies, or did they kind of congregate? Right. The regiments mean something that held over after the war? Yeah, there, so there are a couple of interesting patterns. Um, what I found initially was that um, they did one of three things. They either went to a place like Sioux Falls, which was a pretty chaotic place in the 1870s and 1880s, and they could just kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, or they settled with a couple of their buddies, uh, and they did this across the territory, and I identified clusters of three or more veterans who did that. But the vast majority of them, uh, were going to the, the counties that were most newly opened for settlement. So they were going to the emptiest places yeah. uh, and, and settling. And you can see this really clear divide when you look at the, the Dakota Territory veteran population in general. Um, the, those exposed to trauma went to the places where they could either interact with each other or interact with no one. Right. Um, and that happens a lot. Huh. Um, and then it's exaggerated. You know, Dakota Territory was, was home to, uh, there's this really interesting phenomenon on the Western Plains on North, uh, of soldier colonies. So uh-huh. these are communities that are created from scratch by veterans for veterans. Okay. And uh, Dakota Territory has two of these. Uh, uh, a place called Loyalton, okay. uh, which was in Edmonds County. And then uh, and, and it's a town that no longer exists. And then, uh, of course, Gettysburg up in uh, Potter County. Right. Okay. Um, when you take a look at those populations, the, the uh, percentage of soldiers who served in the 300 fighting regiments climbs to well over 30%. Okay. Uh, so they are really clustering together in communities that are, are designed just for them, where they know that this is where veterans are going. So just for the audience's sake, if you could kind of, this has been a fairly um, sterile conversation so far with statistics and, and, and combat traumas. Discuss a unit, um, what might kind of get them in that 300 group? What kind of experiences, say, the 1st Minnesota or some other unit like that, yeah, the 1st Minnesota is a great case because there are, if I remember correctly, 41 members of the 1st Minnesota who come to Dakota Territory. 
So the, the first Minnesota is uh, probably most famous uh, for its stand at Gettysburg. Okay. When it fills a, a gap on the second day and the unit is all but annihilated. They take 80% combat casualties. Wow. Um, uh, and it happens fast uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in about half an hour, right? Wow. Um, and I'm going for, to forget the veteran's name, but, but one of the veterans of the first Minnesota uh, is recorded in the Dakota Territory Census as having been shot six times at Gettysburg in that space of about half an hour. Oh, my gosh. Right? And, and, and he was not alone. And um, lots of these guys are coming with amputated limbs, sure. with gunshot wounds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first Minnesota, what, what I find interesting about them is that they're already in, uh, uh, you know, Minnesota's a frontier state at that point. Right. And so they go home. And there are clearly some adjustment difficulties, so much so that a large number of their survivors head west for emptier territory, for emptier, emptier ground. Right. Um, and uh, I, I find that that fascinating. They're not they're not coming from New York. Right. They're coming from Minnesota to Dakota Territory uh-huh. in really in really large numbers. And they're naming the town after their battle. I assume. Yeah. yeah. They, they originally tried to name it Meade. Uh, okay. After their general, yeah, uh, and the the uh, post office, the postal service told them they couldn't do that because of Fort Meade, and so uh, oh. Gettysburg was the next best choice. Okay, so Meade was taken by by the army. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they chose Gettysburg. Okay. So then, how do these men then who go through this combat trauma and so forth? What is the nature of their Politics, their culture, what, what kind of uh, communities do they set up, and how does that uh, impact the kind of the founding of the state? That's a really good question because, um, you know, there's been some good work done on the Grand Army of the Republic, the, the Union Veterans Organization, and its role in state politics. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found is that these veterans tended not to be um, – very politically involved or politically engaged. Mm. They, they, they're, they are notable in their silence. Um, so when I was looking at, at these soldier colonies, um, I looked at not only the two in, in South Dakota, but also another um, eight or nine in Minnesota, Kansas, and Nebraska as well. Okay. And um, I had two great case studies. One was Gettysburg. The other was Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, where um, we have access to newspapers that were uh, there from the moment of the town's founding. Okay. And when you go through those newspapers, uh, and I went in, my, my hypothesis was that, that um, veteranhood would be something that would be publicly celebrated and touted and integrated into politics, mm-hmm. integrated into things like uh, business ads, you know, those kinds of things. Right. Um, and I was really surprised to find that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go through the Gettysburg newspaper, for example, the first eight or nine years of the newspaper, there was exactly one newspaper article where a um, uh, political candidate's military credentials are mentioned. Wow. Otherwise, they're completely silent. There's no connection in either Detroit Lakes or Gettysburg to um, – of veteran status and uh, local businessmen. The only thing that you see is um, 
record of celebrations for Fourth of July and Memorial Day. Right. Right. And that's that's where they come up. They're very proud of their military service. Right. Right. Um, but it only comes out on those days, and otherwise, their record is almost completely silent. Um, I had a, a a student here at USC a couple of years ago. He was taking a class with another professor and needed to write a, a, a research paper, and he was interested in political participation in Minnehaha County. Okay. And so I I gave him all of my Minnehaha County record. His name is Cole Turnquist, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, when Cole looked at Minnehaha County, what he found was that the veterans from these high trauma units were far less likely to run for public office than veterans in general, that they just wanted to stay away from it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually has me now thinking about uh, the next research project associated with this, which is to try and and tease a little bit uh, into Grand Army of the Republic in, in Dakota Territory and link Grand Army of the Republic membership to the census. Because yeah. what I've got with the census, which is a little bit different, is I can talk about not only veterans who are part of the GAR, but also veterans who are not part of the GAR and, right. and take a look at differences there. So that's, that's where I think I'm going next. Are there letters or any specific records that uh, these folks left behind that might have discussed their combat trauma in their own way that you can kind of um, – where they – I'm laughing because the, yeah, the answer is, is a, a resounding no, and that's what wow. makes the census so important. Yeah. Um, so there is for, – for South Dakota, um, I have found one veteran who – has written about the impact of the war on his post-war life. Hmm. It was in, uh, his name is Robert Dollard. He, he settled in Scotland, South Dakota. Okay. Um, he wrote a memoir, which is a really interesting memoir. Um, his, his attempt to grapple with the impact of his military service is one paragraph in that memoir. Um, I've been through hmm. all of the manuscript collections in the state archives. Uh, looking for uh, this this kind of any kind of reflection mm-hmm. on the part of veterans, and it's not there. And I would say, you know, I have looked made those same searches in uh, Minnesota and Kansas and Nebraska. Um, the exact same phenomenon. The closest I've come is the son of a veteran in Kansas wrote a memoir where he, uh, one chapter of his memoir is trying to, to grapple with what happened to his father during the war and what effect that had on moving to Kansas. Yeah. Otherwise, they are silent. And um, that's what you see in the published literature on veterans in the national uh, time frame. There's, there's, there's always this, this mention of, oh, and these guys went west. Um, yeah. but the historians who write about it don't say much more than that because they don't have records to work with. Yeah. You, you read uh, General Beadle's autobiography. He barely mentions the war. Our most right. famous and most influential Civil War veteran, arguably, was, was William Henry Harrison Beadle, and um, he was breveted in rank, so he did something during the war, but what it exactly it is, it's kind of a mystery. It's very hard to kind of tease right. out. Right, and I... 
I found that with a couple of others, I mean, there are, there are, there are a couple other, uh, you know, even general officers, um, Beetle, yeah, as you know, Beetle is, is by far the best known. Um, there's a, a guy named uh, Henry Robert Pease, for example, exact same kind of thing, right? Uh, a long military record, um, you know, good distinguished service, and he's not writing about the impact of this at all. They just, it, they, they focus on what for them is the present, right? I right. mean, I, I think as they're rebuilding their lives, mm-hmm. um, there's not much interest in a reflection in the past, which is, from a historian's perspective, is remarkably <laughs> frustrating because I want to know about the past. Right, right. About their past. And about their past in particular. Why won't they tell us? Right. <laughs> so I guess has anybody looked at, uh, and maybe you, you touched on this a bit, the nationwide, the veterans of that 300, um, other than compiling a list of what the units were, uh, there's really not a lot of records about any of those guys and where they may have settled from California to, to remaining home in, in Pennsylvania or wherever? Not that I know of. The, um, you know, the literature of, um, about veterans mm-hmm. and, and the impact of veteran status is relatively recent. Yeah, um, I mean, it's really kind of a post-2010 phenomenon. So there are only a couple of, of uh, uh, historians who've done any real work in the area. It's wide open for research. Um, I'm thinking of the book, I think, uh, Coming Home, the Union Soldiers, um, Long March Home After the War. I, I, I mangled the title, right. I believe, by... Uh, yeah, Brian Matthew Jordan. Yes, uh, and how he... He argues with a book written uh, three decades ago now, I think, um, Embattled Courage. Um, right, Gerald Linderman, that's 1987. Yes, yeah. so uh, Linderman um, going through the records and so forth, I don't know that he treats with the, the high combat veterans um, in the, such detail, mm-hmm. but their view of the war changes during their life from the Linderman book and Embattled Courage. Right. Um, uh, coming home, that book talks about a, a great deal of time spent in politics by the veterans and their advocacy for their pension rights, their um, all the other things they were promised, their anger about how Reconstruction is fizzles away in, in presidential politics and so forth. Um, do you think that that's the group that that was not among the three hundred? I mean, it sounds like the most that's, politically that's active are the are the least in combat. Not to say that their service doesn't matter, but I, right. I, you'd think that'd be inverse to to what you're finding. You would, and, and I don't know how that that shakes out nationally. Um, and I, I think there's something about not just the 300, but about the kind of men who went west that okay. makes them a little bit different. Okay. And um, when I talked to I talked to Brian Jordan about this. Yeah. And yeah. That book, by the way, is is uh, a fabulous book with a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It is. Right? It's a great book. Um, and but it's defined by the records he had to work with, and they're primarily east of the Mississippi River. Right. And you know he'll be the he'll be the first to tell you that um, uh, he had a hard time finding anything west. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the one of the other studies I did, uh, this migration study. Uh, Shows pretty convincing. I think that in general, not just the the, the veterans of the Fighting Three Hundred, but in general, 
um, the veterans who came west were were very different. They were um, they were always sort of high mobility even before the war. Okay. Um, they tended to serve longer enlistments, whether they were in the 300 or not during the war. Okay. They were much more mobile than Union veterans after the war. Um, the, there's something about uh, those men in general who came west that makes them different. So I guess if you could tie this up into a story arc, the 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 research started with you weren't sure what you were going to find, but you had some a hypothesis, for lack of a better term, of what, uh, expectations. Uh, it, it proved sure. to be wildly different than what you would have expected. And along the way, I guess, what does that say about early South Dakota and the type of many, not all, but many of the settlers that were here, they were probably more uh, mobile, as you said, more willing to strike out and be independent, more willing to be on their own, and more willing to keep their their opinions to themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a great summary of the arc. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I was wondering, so you've got a couple of questions you've mentioned that are kind of left hanging. Do you, do you expect to kind of go after those in the coming uh, uh, months or years? Yes, uh, I, I think as, as time allows. Right. The, the biggest one for me is the GAR. Right. Right. If I can, if I can take what we know about the GAR and then marry it to this larger, different data set, that will let us ask all kinds of new and interesting questions mm-hmm. that haven't really been able to be probed before. And so that that's where I'm going to go first. I think. There's a lot to be said. There's a good national literature on the GAR. There's a good state literature on the GAR. Mm -hmm. This will provide a lot more context and help us better understand uh, what the GAR did and what um, veterans in general did or did not do. So I'm excited to get to that. Okay. Well, very good, Kurt. Thanks a lot for your time today, and uh, we sure appreciate you joining us on History 605. Thanks for having me, Ben. Enjoyed it. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history.